0: Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, as we are uh, taking this season to... Take a break from 1 Peter and focus specifically on the incarnation and the hope we have that is revealed in the Christmas miracle of the eternal Son becoming just like you and me, human flesh. I want to look this morning at another passage that uh, teaches us something about the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, uh, but it's, it's also... A, a passage that shows us what the, uh, to focus specifically on if you will the application uh, of the incarnation uh, this morning as we dive more, uh, more fully uh, into this text so our text this morning is in philippians chapter 2 focus, though, will really be on three to nine. So Paul writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, beginning in verse three, do nothing from ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, you sent your Son into the world to, to be obedient to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross, and through that cross you might reconcile and justify guilty sinners to yourself and before you. And Lord, we who believe in Jesus are great beneficiaries of this undeserved work. And yet we are not only those who are called to receive this great gift of eternal life in Christ, but having received this gift, we are called to imitate the very work of Jesus in the Incarnation. To be a people who likewise give our lives away to others who likewise are able to to overlook offenses and to forgive others their trespasses as we ourselves have had ours forgiven. And so Lord, I pray this morning that especially as we consider more about the great work that was done in Jesus, Your Son, entering into the world in the Incarnation, that we would see how it now applies to how we ought to live and to treat one another, especially in your church. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I stated last week that the incarnation of Christ is a foundational doctrine that must be and believe. It is not a minor doctrine that well-meaning Christians can just agree to disagree over. There are certainly uh, many things that uh, well-meaning and like-minded Christians can disagree over that are not central matters of the Gospel, but this is not one of them. The incarnation of Christ marks a dividing line. It marks the between true Christianity and heresy. It marks the difference between which is actually true and that which is heresy. To deny that Jesus was fully God is to fall to the ancient heresy of Arianism and all of its variations that have manifested over the centuries. Or to deny that Jesus was fully man is to fall into the ancient heresy of Gnosticism and all of its variations. Throughout the history of the church, the church has had to confront these various false teachings as it was promised that we would have to confront. You can think, for example, that in the book of 2 Peter, what does Peter say? Just as there were false prophets among the people of Israel The Old Testament, so also will there be false teachers among you. The New Testament prepares us for the reality that there's going to be divisions that are the result of pride and confessions of faith. And so as the church had to confront these many different heresies, over the years, they developed and creeds and confessions that drew clear boundaries between what is true and false doctrine, particularly as it related to the person of Christ. And so the incarnation is a vital, biblical, and historical Christian doctrine. It may not be something that our minds can fully wrap itself around. You know, it's hard to... To, to really you know wrap your mind around the the reality that the eternal Son becomes mortal man how that how does that work? Nevertheless, this is the work that God has done, and it is the saving work that has been revealed in Scripture and the Person of Christ. Having said this. is not just a theological confession that hangs in the air and that is detached from how we are to live as disciples of Christ. It is in fact a very practical doctrine in that it has very practical implications for us. I touched on one of these last week when we looked at Hebrews chapter 4 and we considered implications of the incarnation of Christ in our battle against sin and temptation. It is the fact that the eternal Son became man tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. It, it is the fact that he's, he's experienced our own weaknesses that, that we are implored to, to go before Him even more confidently because he's, He sympathizes with us and He desires to strengthen us so that we will this morning I want to consider another implication of the incarnation and, and this one has much more to do with how we live and relate to one another in the church especially. Temptation of course though not exclusively is, is oftentimes a very personal You're dealing with, in in, in many ways, almost privately, though though that's not always the case. What we are considering is how the incarnation requires us to live and relate to one another, again, particularly in the church. The main charge that I want to draw your attention to this morning is in verses 3 and 4. If you look again, verses 3 and 4, we read there, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. There are actually of course, several charges that are here, but we could sum them all all up with the simple command to humble yourselves before one another. To, to, to be humble before one another. Now, humbling yourself certainly requires, I think, a little bit of explanation. What, what does it look like? What's the difference between true humility and false humility? Right? That there is there is false humility. False humility is often the, the kind of thing where you're, you're like unable to take a compliment. You know, somebody gives you a compliment, and you're like, no, no, I'm just a terrible person. Like, I can't, I can't receive a compliment. Right? That's that's a false kind of, of humility. But there is a true humility as, as well. And, and of course, the the question: What does the with all of this? And we'll consider these matters more fully in, in just a moment, but I do want to begin by noting that for Paul, this this command here, this charge to, 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 to be humble and, and to, to look out for the interest not only of yourself, but for others, this charge, he says, will complete his joy. You obey this Command, he says, and and you'll complete my joy. Verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And then verse 3 carries this thought forward, saying, I doing nothing from selfish ambition. If you're reading from the ESV with me, the ESV to, to smooth out the English begins a new sentence here and so it appears as though there's sort of a verse 3 grammatically is attached to what Paul says in verse 2 complete my joy by these things but by not pursuing selfish ambition and conceit in other words Paul wants this church To flourish. That's his desire. He loves them. He has seen with his own eyes God do marvelous works of grace among them. He was there, you'll remember, when the Lord opened up the heart of Lydia, a Philippian woman. He. He opened up her heart and the heart of her household to receive and believe the Word of God. She she was perhaps probably the the first convert in Philippi. He was there, of course, when he and Silas was in prison. Remember, he's supernaturally freed from prison and the the Philippian jailer is, is fearing that Paul and Silas has escaped, and if they've escaped under his watch, he's going to suffer for it, and so he's on the verge of killing himself over guilt and shame and fear of what may happen to him, and yet Paul stops him from killing himself, and he he preaches the gospel to him, and, and the Philippian jailer and his entire family is saved, but he's He's had some glorious moments with the people at Philippi. He loves them. He cares for them. We read in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 that Paul joyfully prayed for the Philippians in all of his prayers. He was letting them know that you will bring me great joy if you, This church I love. If you walk in humility before one another. Friends, what we see here is the heart of a true pastor. The things that bring his soul joy. Or the things that bring him pain is how the people of God that He's labored over and taught and prayed for are responding to Christ. His greatest concern is not how materially wealthy they've become his greatest concern is really not even their ability or inability to to financially partner together with him in his own missionary works his greatest concern is that they're walking with Christ this charge to live in humility is By no means some burdensome, heavy yoke laid on the church to oppress them. It is a a call to be obedient to the Gospel that many of them have no doubt heard from Paul. And it is a call to be imitators of the Christ who came into the world to save them. Complete my joy by imitating Jesus. The very Jesus I preach to you. Walk in Him. And it will bring me joy. It's really what's being further on in verses 5 to 11, this call to imitate Christ. Paul says in verse 5, if you look with me there, he says, Have this mind among yourselves. What, what mind is he talking about? It's the mind of verses 3 and 4. We'll, we'll come back to these verses in a moment, but it's the mind of, of inhumility counting others more significant than yourselves. Looking not to your own interests alone, but also to those of others. Have have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or as the the note in the ESV puts it, which, which was also in Christ. Have this mind in you that was also in Christ. This humble elves kind of mind is the mind of Christ and it's at this point in the text where Paul unpacks how Christ demonstrated his own humility he did so we find he says in verse 6 if you look there he says in verse 6 of Christ who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Christ had been from all eternity in the form of God. Not at all meaning that he has some godlike shape to him, or not meaning that he's just got the appearance of God while not being God Himself. You know, that, that's what having the form of something can kind of convey as well. That's not what he's getting at here. Paul here is referring to the divine majesty and glory of Christ before He came into the world. In Jesus' prayer, Jesus prayed there, He said, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. This this majesty, this glory. Christ, prior to the incarnation, was was full of the radiance of, of God, shining forth the glory of God in Himself. In appearance, you could think of what He looked like on the Mount of Transfiguration, where where for a moment, right, it was as if the the veil of His human flesh was removed for a moment and and the disciples who were with them looked at Him and, and we read that when they saw Him, they saw His face shining like the sun and His clothes were as white as light. Could you imagine seeing someone shining as bright as the sun? That is the, that is the glory of Christ and His majesty seen on full display. One that when you, when you see it, it's as if all rational comprehension goes right out the door. It's, it's one of the reasons why Peter, as he's with Jesus on the Mount's Transfiguration, has essentially nothing to say except for, Lord, it's good that we're here One could think of the great vision of Isaiah six, where Isaiah saw the Lord up on the throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Robe filled the temple, and where the heavenly seraphim were singing His praise, and where the foundations shook. The sound of His voice. That's majesty. That's glory. Sovereign Lord enjoying the eternal presence of His Father ruling over all creation and receiving worship from all creatures. There is no higher, no more exalted, more comfortable position that one could have. And yet... Paul says that though he was in this form, though he was in a glorious state, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. This this position of majesty. He didn't consider it something that had to be kept and to his eternal advantage as the majestic Son of God was not mind the most important matter that rides all others. What was most important was the will of His Father that He should enter into a sin-infested world in the likeness of sinful flesh to redeem sinners from the curse of death. That He should give up the position of His Majesty And enter into lowliness. In other words, Christ considered the interest of others. And He considered their needs. And He considered this all more significant than His own. He could have, hypothetically, remained in a state of glory forever. And in that state, determined only to the world and destroy it completely, universal flood, or by fire, with no one spared from the judgment. And in determining to do such a thing, interest as a just and righteous God would have been served. Paul is saying here that concerned about the real needs even of the most guilty of sinners. The most guilty. And as a result, instead of holding on to His majesty, verse 7 says, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now this this emptying here was a self-emptying. It's not an emptying of His divine nature. He cannot not cease to be no longer divine. Rather, it's a self-emptying of glory. It's a laying aside of that majesty. He left the throne in heaven, and he became born in a lowly state. He was born in a house from a, from, and grew up in a no-name city of Nazareth. I mean, you you think of Nazareth, you have got to think about like what, what is what of is like nothing good comes from there. You can think of these huge cities that everyone wants to go to, whether it's the New York cities or the L.A.s or Chicago's or whatever the big cities are. Right? You, most people in the world—they're—they're they're not thinking of Boaz, Alabama. <laughs> that's where—that's where Jesus was from. Nazareth. Nothing good comes from there. He became a man who. Who washed the dirty feet of his disciples? He became a man who, in his ministry, would spend hours caring for the sick, for the dying, caring over the dying, caring for those even who had died, caring for those who were demon oppressed, and those who had all kinds of physical ailments. He patiently. Taught his own followers many times the same lesson over and over again because they just didn't seem to get it. He's patient, even in his teachings with his followers. He never pursued his own will, own but was always carrying out the will of his father and always obeying him. And in serving his father and serving the needs of sinners, Paul says he he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His, his service to others was humility seen in action when you're seeing the lord jesus serve others you're seeing a true display of humility and this humility of course in jesus was was without limit it was costly humility it was painful he didn't humble himself only to the point which his conveniences wouldn't be hindered he didn't humble himself only in such a way as to to maintain some recognition of power and authority among men. His humility, his self-giving, his obedience to the will of God was carried out even to the point of death. That's how costly it was. The incarnation... God is not only a mysterious work of the infleshing of the second person of the Godhead and all the mysteries that come with it. The incarnation is a display of a divine attribute of God that no man would ever imagine actually belongs to God. You don't make this stuff up. When men invent idols and false religions, their, their deities are reflections of their own corrupt desires. They pursue these deities of all of these other world religions and pagan religions. They, they pursue power. They pursue control. They, they fight. They have no tolerance for weakness. Men invent humble God. Because it would serve no for themselves. Humility is not think that the Almighty, sovereign creator of all things would possess. And yet, in the we- person of the Son, one who humbled himself, and in humbling himself, he secured our redemption cross. There's a, uh, there's a modern hymn that we'll sing together next week. It's called, Come Adore the Humble King. He's a humble king. and The last verse of, of this song says, Come adore the king who came to our world to save us. Born to heal our Prideful race, crown us with forgiveness. Fall, O oh, fall, before the One who in mercy left His throne. Christ the Lord, God's only Son. His glories now we sing, O oh, praise the humble King. It is the humility of the Son that secures our forgiveness but it is also the humility of the Son that heals our own pride. Never have. If there is anyone, any being who ought to have Humbles Himself to save us from our own pride, which leads us to some of the implications of the incarnation. Now, this this aspect of the incarnation that we're considering this morning—that Christ humbled Himself, that He He His glory behind. Becoming a a lowly servant so that through Him we might benefit and be saved. This aspect of the incarnation is the foundation for how we are to live among one another in the body. It certainly has application for, for how we ought to treat those who are outside of the body. But it most especially concerns how we are to live amongst one another as Christ's blood-bought people in the church. We too are to humble ourselves. And that humility is not just some inability, again, to receive a compliment and a constant effort to put ourselves down. Again, that's a false humility. The humility we are called to display is outlined for us in verses 3 and 4. And the first thing that we see displayed in this humility is that you do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit. Okay. How you conduct yourself, the actions you take, the decisions you make, you do none of that out of ambition and conceit. Many men seek power. Men who want to stand in a pulpit and preach. See, only in the they don't care about the lives and the spiritual well-being of those they preach to. They cannot say with Paul that a people who are pursuing Christ together are completing their joy. They don't find joy in others. They don't find joy in The people of God walking with God. They find joy in power. Of course, this isn't just an issue for men who desire to be pastors. This can also become an issue just for anyone in the church. Factions can be formed within local churches. And those factions could be made up of members who are all just vying for control. They manipulate and scheme and look for whatever flaws they can find in their opposition. They don't know what it is to overlook an offense. They don't know what it is to have love cover a multitude of Sins. They don't know what it is to be slow to anger. They don't understand where or how this fits in with their brand of Christianity because frankly, people like this have not had their own sins overlooked. Because people like this stand condemned before God. People who cannot forgive... The trespasses of others, or overlook even the smallest offenses, should have no assurance of their own salvation, their own forgiveness before God. Us. Of our trespasses, as we forgive others theirs. If, if there's a, if there are people, if, if there are people within the church who, who cannot forgive one another, the, the security that they claim to have rests on a foundation of sand. to do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit because the Philippians themselves had some major divisions among them that were the result of selfish ambition and conceit. I don't think there's a, a major issue that they're dealing with here. Later on in the book, he does tell two women to agree with one another in the Lord. major divide as what you would see in in the Corinthians. I think he says this because this is something that we always have to be watchful over. Pride is one of the most subtle and dangerous vices that can take root in the heart. this is a clear example of sin pride is a matter of the heart so it can be difficult to discern it does however produce certain kinds of visible fruit so take for example Where Paul there is warning against those who would and words with, with godliness. If, if you have someone who is trying to teach false doctrine, at root of it is pride. And, and he says in this text, he says that this person, people who would try to do this, he says he's he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, evil, suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Things for controversy constant friction. These are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of fruit that pride produces. And every single one of these, every single one of these characteristics, quarreling, slander, all of these are wholly unconcerned with the well-being of others. It's always Always a selfish pursuit. And this, of course, is the exact opposite of what humility is, and the, he humbled himself in the incarnation. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse three, he says that in humility you count others more significant than yourself. Verse 4, you don't only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a beautiful example of this at the end of chapter 2. Paul tells the Philippians, beginning in verse 25, that he's going to send his brother in the Lord, his fellow worker and fellow soldier, Epaphroditus. He's going to send Epaphroditus to the Philippians. And Epaphroditus himself was from Philippi. The Philippian church, in their partnership with Paul in the gospel, had had sent Epaphroditus to Paul with, with, a, with a gift, with, with supplies, to, to aid him in his own journeys and to, to serve alongside of Paul calls him in verse 25, he calls him your, referring to the Philippians, your messenger. You're, you're, a, you're sent one. He's part of the Philippian church, sent out by the church to serve with Paul. But, but Paul says in verse 25, I'm sending him back to you. And as he explains why in verses 26 and following, he says, For he, Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. Near to death. So here's Epaphroditus laboring with the Apostle Paul. What an opportunity. An honor to be with an Apostle. And then he gets sick. finds out that the Philippians know that he's sick. And you know what Paul says brings him distress? It's not his sickness. It's the well-being of the church. Their own anxieties. Their own concerns over his deathly illness. His concern is that their hearts would not be troubled over his afflictions. That one is mind-blowing to me. Because I'm the kind of person, when I get sick, it's all about me. (laughs) My wife can attest. And it might be something as small as a little car. Right? The world is coming to an end and everything is crashing down. Right? But here's this man who's on his deathbed and while he's in this state and even after as he's recovering, his concern is for the church, is for the people of God. He's an example of what truth Christ, who Himself, when facing not only death, but the justice of God against sin, Christ is thinking about carrying out the will of the Father and saving His people from from their sins. As, As He's breathing His last breath, and He cries out, It is finished! He's thinking about the mission to carry out the will of the Father and redeem sinners. Even as He's hanging on the cross, hes you'll remember at the end of Jerusalem, He's hanging there, no doubt, in much excruciating pain. And who does He see? He sees His mother according to the flesh. And then He sees... The disciple he loved, John. And he's thinking of his mother and he says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. He's he's assuring her that she's going to be taken care of even as he... That's what happens. John takes her into his, his own home and she, she lives with him from that day forward to it circumstances. the culture of the church, Church as it is now—that's a radical call. It's a, it's completely different from or how most people live in the world. For most people, the decision to get out of bed, right, to to come to church gather with the people of God to them and them alone. And This is just a personal decision and their presence has no effect on anyone. Else. The decision to fellowship with others is is likewise a, a personal decision. It's confined to, to me and myself and, and no one else. And it has no effect on anyone. You're just fine without me. It's personal evangelism. It's not personal in that it's just between you and the Lord and whoever you're witnessing to. When people are regularly sharing the gospel, what do they want to do? They want to talk about it. They want to talk about it. They want to pray about the people that they've been able to witness to, and, and that's infectious. Right? That, that affects others. I've been greatly encouraged by several of the men here who regularly share the gospel with others, and we've had opportunity to share the gospel with others together, and we pray for those they're witnessing that conversation alone together, that stirs you on it stirs me on to want to do even more and of course the absence of it can likewise have a chilling effect on others virtually everything you do is not just between you and the Lord For you and your own family. It's corporate. A culture of humility in the church, friends, is one where, as as Paul says, we're not only looking out for our own interests, but the interests of others. Church and Christianity is not just about what I can get. Out of it. It's about how I, having received so great a salvation in Christ, can now give my life to others as Christ gave his life for me. It's an imitation of that work. You know, I think that if, if this mindset was more prevalent among Christians. I think the least attractive ministry, church revitalization. I think that ministry in particular would be on, everything. to be a church that has been declining. Probably has many unhealthy things going on within it. But the gospel's being preached. There's a man of God who is seeking to revitalize the life of the church. If we have the mind of humility, the mind of Christ in us, that ministry is the one that we ought to all be wanting to die for. To serve not just to to take in whatever the church might have to offer you. It's, It's you see desperate needs. You see sinners. And you look at that in the same way that Christ looks at sinners. An opportunity to give your life to others it would be a radically different culture that we would have the problem of course is that pride often gets in the way and Christ came to destroy that pride and to heal us from it so friends we we people here who give our because Christ in the incarnation, we want to imitate that. And wherever we faith, we don't wallow in that sin. The model we have in Jesus and we see him into the good fight and knowing that we have had one who has served us in so great a way amen well let's go to the Lord and ask blessings on his word father there is no Greater example of humility that we could receive than that of your Son Jesus. And how, in his graciousness and mercy, he, he gave his life on behalf of us, wretched sinners. And so, Lord, I pray that as the Apostle Paul exhorted the Philippian believers to have this mind in them that was in Christ, that so also would it be in us. Lord, that you would strip us of all of the pride that we have within our own hearts and make us more like this self-giving Son. May you use your word strengthen our church so that we, Lord, might shine as lights. And I pray this in Jesus' name.